We've been looking at the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, probably going to finish it up around May. And uh, the reason that we're looking at this book is it it is one of the, uh, well, the the life of David represents more uh, of the content of the Bible than any other single figure. He is written about more and has more ink than anyone else. And it's because of the significance that David played. He was the true king that God wanted over his people and God wanted his people to be able to recognize this king. And this king would be very unique. He would have a heart that was after God's heart. So there was going to be a a very unique relationship between the king and God himself. Now, like we talked about in our adult Sunday school this morning, it's very easy for us to read the Bible uh, in an exemplary fashion as a model for behavior and say, well, you just need to be like the characters in the Bible. They're, you know, God is giving us a lot of instructions and there's all this stuff and you want to be like them. But that's not really, you cannot read these narratives and say you need to be like David or Abraham or Moses or anybody else. They're, they're there to point us to someone else who you're supposed to be like him, but only insofar as you're willing to trust him. And then your behavior over the time, your span of a lifetime may change. In fact, it will change. But the point is that you have an ability to recognize who is your true king. That's why the book of Samuel was written. It was written to people centuries after David, after his life, so that the people of God would be able to look out and say, this is our true king. And if you know the rest of the story that we read in in the Bible, it's just a lot of failure, a lot of tragedy, a lot of sadness, and nobody seems to make it. They just seem to fall short. Some do magnificent things, others not so much. And then in the grand narrative of Scripture, there is silence. For hundreds of years, not a word. And the king, the throne is empty. In fact, it's taken over by an Edomite, which was the worst thing possible, whose name was Herod. So the story of the Bible is the kingdom in search of a king. And will God's people be able to recognize that king? How will you recognize him? And one of the things that we found out a few weeks ago is this king will be where he belongs when it's time to fight the battle. He will step into the valley of Elah and he will fight Goliath. Now for you to be like David and fight Goliath, you're going to lose Goliath every time as you'll see in a moment. You're not to be looking to conquer the giants in your life by yourself or even with the help of someone else. You're to be looking for the one who will conquer the giant and then call you into battle to trust him and follow him into that battle. Knowing the battle is won, still going to have to fight, but knowing the battle is won. 
So these narratives are written for that purpose. That's what they're presenting. And Dawson showed last week how, the, how Saul, the king whom David was going to replace, is just eaten up with envy and jealousy and bitterness. He knows that he doesn't trust the Lord. Saul knows he doesn't trust God. But he tries to keep God's relationship with him transactional. And it doesn't work. And the Spirit of, of God leaves Saul, goes to David, and a tormenting spirit from the Lord comes on Saul. And slowly he descends into madness. And so we're going to look today at a, the next narrative. There's a series of narratives here where Saul and David are in conflict. Last week, Saul is manipulating people around him, his daughters, David and others, to try to get David to marry uh, one of his daughters. The eldest was Mirab and the younger one was Michael. And he wants David to go out and fight the Philistines and conquer a hundred of them and that will be the bride price. That will be his entrance into the royal family. Well, David... Why should I be? I'm the least of uh, the king's uh, followers. I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't even be there. And so Saul's attempt to have David killed in an overwhelming battle of Philistines against David fails. Saul doesn't give up. He then sees his daughter, his younger daughter, Michael loves David, and therefore I'll give my younger daughter to uh, David, and maybe she will be a snare to him because she loved him. She really genuinely loves David. And so that's where we're going to start with our narrative. This is, a, this is fascinating. Uh, you could turn this into a great movie, only it would never be as good as what you're going to, to see here. So we're going to read, starting in uh, chapter 19, we're going to read the, I'm just going to read portions of it like Dawson and, and Marcos have been doing and, and explain it as we go along. And we're going to look at three things. Basically, we're going to look at Jonathan, Michael, and then Saul, and the Spirit of God. Those three things, that's the way I'm breaking this down. And for Jonathan, we're going to find out that the way up is the way down. So, Let's, let's read these first few verses uh, in chapter 19. Now hear God's word. Saul now urged his servants and his son Jonathan to assassinate David. No more, uh, you know, tricky little schemes of getting the Philistines to do it. No, nope. it's just a, 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 a command from the king. I want you, Jonathan, to kill, assassinate him. I want my servants to assassinate him. And as Dawson told us last week, Jonathan has his heart has been knit with the heart of David, and he makes a covenant with him. So there's no chance this is, that he's going to do this. But Saul is becoming more insane with envy and jealousy over David. Jonathan, because of his strong affection for David, told him what his father was doing. He goes and tells David, you know, my father wants to kill you. Tomorrow morning, he warned, you must find a hiding place out in the fields. 
I'll ask my father to go out there with me and I'll talk to him about you. Then I'll tell you everything I can find out. The next morning, Jonathan spoke with his father about David, saying many good things about him. The king must not sin against his servant David, Jonathan said. He's never done anything to harm you. He has always helped you in any way he could. Have you forgotten about the time he risked his life to kill the Philistine giant and now the Lord has brought great victory to Israel as a result? You were happy about it then. See, it's Jonathan telling his father, you were happy back then. What's happened? What's wrong with you? Why should you murder an innocent man like David? There is no reason for it at all. So Saul listened to Jonathan and vowed, as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be killed. Afterward, Jonathan called David and told him what had happened. Then he brought David to Saul. And David served in the court as before. War broke out again after that. And David led his troops out against the Philistines. And he attacked them with such ferocity that they all ran away. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, you see here David and Jonathan, their covenant, their agreement with one another is unbreakable. And Jonathan recognizes the true king. He sees the true king. Jonathan is in line for the throne. He's the eldest son. He is a great warrior, fierce warrior, a dangerous man by all accounts. He's full of faith. In fact, in Scripture, he's one of the few what we call an idealized character. He just You never see anything wrong with Jonathan. He's always right on target. In fact, if there's anyone that you should want to be like, you should be like Jonathan. Absolute and unreserved trust in the true king. Because that's what we see in this man. He recognized, he saw, he had eyes to see, he had ears to hear, and he put himself back, he put himself behind in favor of God because he loved David as he loved his own soul. And more importantly, folks, he loved God. And his love for God gave him the ability to recognize God's true anointed king. Dawson read these words last week. It's just beautiful. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. He loved him as he loved his own soul. And he made a covenant with David and stripped himself of the robe and gave it to David along with his armor, sword, bow, and belt. And Dawson was right. He said, this is not romantic or erotic love. This is not uh, two men in love with each other. This is so much deeper than anything romantic or erotic. This is the kind of brotherhood that Jesus described later when he came and saying we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is the bond of love that God has 
for his people and expects his people to have for one another. And it's why Jesus said in heaven, you're not going to marry or be given in marriage. That There's no need for it there. We're going to know each other at a level, and an experiential level, that will transcend everything and anything we possibly could have known here. And it's going to be incredible and beautiful. And Jonathan and David experience this. And Jonathan wants to protect David because he knows that David is the true king. So here in, in, in this first section of 19, we see Jonathan continuing this pattern of protection. He does it over and over. Next, in the next chapter, which Dawson will look at next week, jo- uh, he, Jonathan is pr- continues to protect David, and it so enrages Saul that Saul takes a spear and he throws it at Jonathan and tries to pin him to the wall. And then in chapter 23, this final one of the final, I think it is the final meeting of David and Jonathan, Jonathan says this to him, don't be afraid. He's telling David, don't be afraid. My father's not going to be able to find you. You know, we've gone, we've hidden you, we've done all these things. My father will never find you. You will be king of Israel and I will be next to you. My father, he knows this. See, this was not some mysterious Gnostic type of thing that nobody knew. People knew Saul had failed. They knew that David was the heir apparent. Jonathan knew it. He recognized his Lord. And he was willing to submit his life entirely to the will of his king. Now folks, the application, you don't have to think very hard about this. That's what God is asking of his people. Not to be like David, as many good things are about David, but more importantly for us to submit our lives and our loyalties and our allegiances, our will, our very will itself, to submit those to our King for His glory in the world, knowing that God is with Him, the Spirit of God is on Him, and that if we will trust Him, we, no harm will befall us. You may die, the Philistines may kill you, but you still win. Your life is not limited to this here and now. It is an existence that is eternal with your King. How do you recognize the King? Can you trust this King? These stories are saying, absolutely. Saul is consumed with envy, jealousy, fear, anxiety, murderous rage. We could go on and on. He's spiraling. He's becoming almost insane. David is busy. Uh, Verse 8, you see David's busy uh, fighting the Philistines. David is going out leading the army now and killing the Philistines. And all Saul can think about is killing David. He completely forgets the mission that he's on and turns his attention to himself and to finding ways to 
destroy the anointed one of God. You see, when, when we're going to see he throws a spear at David in a moment, when he throws that spear, he's not throwing it at David. He's throwing it at God. And I wonder sometimes, wow, how often do we rebel? Our hearts are so consumed with self that we, we don't stop for a moment and think, if, if, I, if I strike out in this way, who am I really going after? Am I going after that person or that thing? Or am I really striking out at God? Do I trust Him? And that's something we've got to ask ourselves every day. It's something David asked himself every day. Look at verse 9. Here's where you see what, what happens. One day, Saul is sitting at home, spear in hand, the tormenting spirit from the Lord. He's sitting there mulling all this stuff over. And this spirit is whispering, uh, this evil spirit. And suddenly it came upon him. David was playing the harp. He took the spear and he hurls it at David. David misses or, or dodges him. Saul misses. And so David flees and takes off into the night. And Saul sends his soldiers out to watch David's house to kill him. Saul had tried all these indirect ways to kill him. Now it's just open warfare. We're going to kill him. I'm commanding you to kill him. He's, now he's sending his soldiers to go find David and kill him. And this pattern of opposition is something, folks, that you see, gosh, it's almost everywhere in your Bible. It's, it's frightening. This pattern of people hammering away at each other. From the first chapters of Genesis, you see Cain uh, killing Abel. You see the world collapsing into to violence to where... God sends a flood and has to start things over again. And then you see the Tower of Babel and people uh, getting confused in their languages and fighting. And then on and on it goes. The conflicts between human beings goes back to the seed, the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And Jesus later says famously, your enemies will be the ones of your own household. And that's what's happening. You're seeing God's kingdom. God is trying to put it together. And what do you see? People within the kingdom trying to tear it apart. Saul trying to do it because he's envious and jealous and he wants to use his military might and his strength and his royal power to destroy God's true king. And we see the Pharisees and Sadducees and Herod and everybody else later on doing the same thing to Jesus. God insists, folks, that His people trust Him. And sadly, sometimes it's people within the household of God that don't trust Him and can't see or recognize the true King. You know, there's a heavy weight on. Dawson talked about shepherding this morning and I hope you all will Really give this some thought and contact us if you have questions. This is important that you realize there's a, a huge responsibility on the elders and the pastors of this church, any church, to guide you through hard places in life. And there are an infinite number of those hard places and they can take on any kind of form or shape. 
And if you have leaders that are able to recognize who the true king is and then take you and point you to that true king and then encourage you, get in the battle with you, fight alongside you, be there with you when the, when the chips are down or when the chips are up or whatever, you've got people around you. Your chance of being successful in life will be way beyond what it is. If you're just a loner, you're out there on your loan, kind of hiding back, and I don't want to commit, that kind of thing. You'll get burned alive. I've tried it. Marivy and I tried it. We got burned alive. You can't go it alone. You need God, you need His shepherds, you need the true King, and you need people to help you stay in touch with that true King. Saul did never, never could do that. David, even at the worst failures of his life, always did that. He always returned back to God. He never, ever turned away. He turned towards Him. That's the heart of him, a, the man after God's own heart. So let's look at Michael. Here's this younger daughter of Saul who David uh, did accept as, as a bride and did provide the, uh, the dowry and, uh, and, and that Saul, so he knows something about his daughter, that she's going to be a snare to David. And I think we get a little picture of it here. It's, it's interesting. Look at verse 11. Michael tells David, he's run out of the court, he's run home, he's hiding out, and Saul is sending the army uh, soldiers after him to go and arrest him. And Michael, she loves him. And she tells him, if you don't escape tonight, you'll be dead by morning. And so she helps him climb out the window and he fled and escaped. And then she does something very interesting. Scholars, you know, they've pondered this. She takes an idol. Now, idol, it means a statue. We don't know what in the world this idol is doing in David's house because he was not an idolater. In fact, he probably never laid eyes on this idol. She probably had it in a corner of the house or in a closet. I don't know. I don't like to speculate. But anyway, she goes and gets this idol that's in her house, their house, puts it in the bed, covers it up with sheets and put a pillow and some goat's hair so it looks like David's in the bed. So this is fun. Let's just speculate for a minute. You know I don't ever do this, but I'll, I'll do it now. What if Saul knew that his daughter Michael was an idolater? And that's going to be the snare. Hey, I'll give him my daughter that loves him, but oh man, she hides these idols around the house. Could be. The story doesn't tell us, so we can't say too much more than that. But isn't that interesting? She becomes a snare. And her love is not like Jonathan's love. It's a jealous, bitter, she becomes jealous, she becomes bitter, she becomes hateful. She gets to the point where she actually despises David because of the same thing her father despised David, his relationship with God. Isn't that interesting? Saul hates David because of his relationship with God. His daughter Michael hates David because of his relationship with God. The soldiers show up. She tells the soldiers, she lies to them, says, oh, he's sick in bed, he can't come. And so they, you know, they 
okay, they go back to the king. The king is furious. Go back and get him. Bring him bed and all. I want to kill him now. So they go back to get him, find out it's an idol. And then Saul goes after his daughter and says, why did you betray me to my enemy? And she lies again and she says, hey, he threatened to kill me if I didn't help him. Michael and David's relationship is complicated, folks. And we'll never figure it out. And he doesn't go into a lot of detail. But she did love him. She did betray him. Uh, in the the end, she does turn on him. But we have an interesting psalm. And I want to read this to you. 59, Psalm 59 is a a psalm that, uh, that relates to this because of the ascription. It says... For the choir director, a psalm of David regarding the time Saul sent soldiers to watch David's house in order to kill him, to be sung to the tune, do not destroy. Rescue me, O God, from my enemies. Here's the heart of the king, the true king. Rescue me from the heart of my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who have come to destroy me. Rescue me from these criminals. Save me from these murderers. They have set an ambush for me, fierce enemies are out here waiting. Lord, though I have not sinned against them or offended them, I've done nothing wrong, yet they prepare to attack me. Are you hearing somebody else's voice? I hope you are. Wake up, O Lord. See what is happening. Help me. Oh, my strength to you, I sing praise. For you, O God, are my refuge, the God who shows me unfailing love. You see, this is the heart of the true king. You see this perfectly expressed in Jesus. That's who I was referring to. When you read the Psalms, you can often hear these songs on the lips of our Lord. Help me, save me, the true king. Enemies of his own household. Jonathan and Michael both intervene to protect David. But now we see in the final part of this, the Holy Spirit intervenes. And it's kind of weird, and I'll I'll just allude to it a little bit because it, it is hard to understand. But David escapes, and he goes to see Samuel the prophet, who's still alive. And he goes and he tells Samuel... All that has happened to him. This is in the last verses, 18 through 24. And then we have this strange account. Samuel tells him, come on, come in, live with me. We're going to go over to Nioth and you can be living with me. And Samuel has this whole school. It's like the University of Samuel where he has all the prophets and he's teaching everybody how to prophesy. And, you know, there's this amazing things that happen in these stories of these schools of prophets uh, we think that there, there were just mystics that are sitting in a, a lotus position and saying, um, um, you know, that kind of thing. But no, they were learning the Word of God together. They were worshiping God together. They were prophesying or teaching or formulating the things that we enjoy today, knowing about our, what we call our theology. And here in that environment, David comes and is hiding Well, Saul can't stand it, and so he sends three subsequent groups of troops to go and arrest him. And each time these groups of soldiers get to Nioth, 
they come under some sort of an ecstatic uh, trance or something and they start uh, uh, prophesying along with all the other prophets that are there. And so one will fail, another one will, uh, he'll send another group, that one fails three times. Finally, Saul becomes frustrated, as you can see in verse 22. Saul goes himself, but the same result, the Spirit falls on him, rushes upon him, comes upon him, and he ends up prophesying too. And then in a, uh, the chapter ends in a twisted irony with this saying, what? Is even Saul a prophet? Here he is prophesying and he's laying there naked. And uh, Why in the world is he telling us all this? Well, you have to remember, folks, the whole book of Samuel is so that you can recognize your true king. How are you going to recognize him? Who is he going to be? What is he going to do? What is he going to look like? Not his appearance, but his his ethos, his, his being. Who is this man? Everyone, the book of Samuel, Dawson told us a few weeks ago, everyone is looking at the outward appearance. Even Samuel the prophet's looking at the outward. We all do this. We're always looking for outside solutions. And there are some, sometimes there are, and you can find them. But more often, folks, for us in our life, in the spiritual life, the life of a Christian, the answers have to start inside with our Lord, with our King. Looking to Him, to our King. Is He really the King? Is He sovereign? Will He, will he do what is right? Will He do what is, tr- is just? Can I trust Him? Even with this horrible thing that's happening, whatever it is in your life, or these series of things, or what, what, whatever. Can I trust Him? And you look in this, and you see a king on the ground in some sort of an ecstatic, naked. Now, I don't, I don't want to stretch this too far, but there's, there is another place we see somebody naked. And that's at the cross. You see another king who is stripped naked and brutalized and placed upon the cross in our place. This is the valley of Elah, the the valley of the shadow of death. No, it's the valley of death. Jesus is the king who endures this type of thing for you, as you, as us. And we, as the people of God, if God has has blessed you and, and made it possible for you to recognize Him and to know that He is your true King, then every day of your life, when you wake up in the morning, you've got to make a choice. Am I going to choose to follow my King? And over and over again, you see these people in the Bible, Abraham in in, uh, Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and God imputed it to him as righteousness. Joshua says, I've told you all these things about the Lord. Today, the choice is yours. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, what? 
We will serve the Lord. My house, me and my house. Every day you have to make this choice. If God has given you the ability to recognize your true king, you're to recognize him and choose that day to follow him and that moment to follow him, that week to follow, whatever it is. It's a constant turning to the true king. Jonathan recognized the true king when he saw David step into the valley of Elah and it said, the narrative says that his heart went out to David and he loved him as himself. The Goliath that humanity has got to face, the thing that strikes terror in the soul of every human being is death. And the author of death is sin. And how are you, ask yourself, how are you going to conquer that giant of sin and death and hell? I don't think, I don't know anybody that's got an answer for that. Except for the Apostle Paul. Listen to this. Have this same attitude in you that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think equality was God, was something to be grasped or held on to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and took on the humble position of a servant, a slave. And he was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God, and he died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a place of highest honor, a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Who do you bow your knee to? Your king. And every tongue will confess that he is king, he is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the king. He's given us the ability to recognize our king. And in his nakedness, he saved us and asked us to trust him. Will you trust him? I hope you will. Father, we do thank you for your kindness and your mercy. Every day of our lives, we're reminded of how much you love us. And, and uh, we prepare now to come to this, your table. We ask that you would feed us in our hearts by faith. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.